this is Santi Gold, and you're listening to my new podcast, Noble Champions, conversations to expand your mind, feed your soul, and push culture forward. So most people probably know me as an artist, a singer, a songwriter, a creator of some sort. I'm also a mother. I've got three kids with my partner, Trevor, an eight-year-old named Radic, and four-year-old twins named Honor and Iko. Being a parent is a massive job for anyone. Being a mother and an artist is also a constant balancing act. It's tough, tending to the needs of your children while attempting to make space for your own needs and creative flow. The big question is, can we as women, as mothers, have it all? Can we thrive in our art, our careers, and succeed in mothering the way we aspire to? On each episode, I've been playing the song from my new album, Spirituals, which relates to and somewhat inspired the episode. The inspiration song for today is called My Horror. This one was written during the lockdown phase of the pandemic. It's about how it feels when we don't succeed in that balance. And in this case, when we feel trapped in a part of ourselves that is too small, when we don't get to embody our full being because we're stuck in the requirements of the mundane. conversation is all about being a creative mother. I invited on my friend, actor, director, producer, Olivia Wilde, who recently directed and acted in her film, Don't Worry Darling, while also being the mother of two kids, her five-year-old daughter, Daisy, and eight-year-old son, Otis. So she definitely knows the delicate juggling act of creative motherhood. We're also joined by my friend, Rebecca Walker. She's first and foremost an artist, a prolific writer, speaker, visionary, and a mother. She has a son, Tenzin, who's 17. And as we speak, he's flown the nest. He's on a tech-free trip in Nepal. But Rebecca has another super interesting perspective as the daughter of a creative mother that we'll dig into. She's the daughter of the legend Alice Walker, the writer behind the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Color Purple. Hi, ladies. Hello. What's happening? So today we are talking about being professional creatives and mothers and its many challenges and beauties and wonders. We all have children <laughs> and we all have been mothers through these insane past couple of years, especially with all this happening in the world and also trying to be artists and creators at the same time. And it's just such a unique challenge that I wanted to do a special episode just on that because all of us have talked about it individually so much, extensively cried about it. So I thought, you know, it's really important to bring some of the things we've been talking about out into the world. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is the struggle for balance between tending to the needs of children and making space for your own needs and creative flow. Sure. Right away, you know, when you mentioned the last couple of years and combining the identities of artist and mother, it makes me think about how the sort of 
gift of this global pause, if we're to be really optimistic about what we've been through, was the opportunity for artists to step back and reflect and adjust perspective and to dig in and to somehow help humanity contextualize this experience, right? Because if that's our job as artists, this global pause seemed to encourage and allow for that. But if you are also a mother, how were you to take that opportunity? How were you supposed to pause? Suddenly, we were not only mothers, we were homeschool teachers. We were 24-hour caretakers. We were therapists. We were all of these things while trying to also take this opportunity to kind of reflect on what this global upheaval meant and to try to create art out of it. So the balance you speak of was so hard to grasp. You know, I often ask myself these days, what would I do if we knew it was all going to happen again? Like if you told me right now, Olivia, I've got the scoop. There's another <laughs> global pandemic coming. It's going to hit. You now have a few weeks to prepare. How would I react? What would I do this time? Would I allow for it in a less resistant way? That's what I tend to think about. But I wonder how we would achieve balance if we had preparation because we were in triage mode. It was constant reaction and just survival. And how are you meant to achieve balance when you're just trying to survive and juggle these identities of mother and artist and all the other things we are? So I don't have an answer to it. It's just a question that I think about all the time. Kids today, I think, are really overprotected often. I mean, you know, the world is a nightmare, but I really enjoyed my freedom as a young person. I mean, I felt lonely sometimes, but also I could pretty much go anywhere, travel alone very young. I went and fell in love with a man on the, a tiny island off the coast of Kenya when I was 19, backpacking with like two skirts and a book. t-shirt. That was oh, amazing. you read that book? Yeah, <laughs> I did read a book. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the kids today, they're like so precious because we love them so much and because we understand how tenuous it all is. And because of all of the attachment parenting narratives and all of the different stuff that's bombarding us, I think that it's so important to give them their independence and to sort of both push them out and hold them close because it's what allows them to be confident in the world. I've seen so many of my friends who've overprotected and then the kids are pretty much too fragile to live. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. They just, mm -hmm. they're missing something. And you think, Jesus, you know, when I was your age, I was doing X, Y, and Z. I was just talking the other day. I was I was saying how we watched Risky Business at my seven-year-old birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's also, you know, giving them space to fill time on their own so they don't feel like we are responsible for filling their time, for occupying their attention, so that they have time to wonder and time to be bored. Sometimes Otis, my eight-year-old, will say, I'm bored. I'm like, good, sit with that. See what it brings up. I, don't rely on me to fill your day with activities and thoughts. Recently, we were in this village in Ireland where my dad's from and we spent a week there and I just sent him off like I did as a kid wandering around by myself and he would go down and go get ice cream and walk back up the hill and he was so happy. He went by himself? Yeah, he went by himself. There were other kids around. I, went, I gave him money. He went and bought the ice cream, came back. And I thought, 
how can I replicate this not in a village environment? How can I bring this into the city life and allow him to find independence in the real world? So it's not only independence on the internet, because I think what happens now so often is we think, okay, we're going to let them have their solo time on the internet playing, whether it's like video games or whatever they're making. And it's like, I often feel the only independence they really have is online and it scares me. Yeah, that's frightening. I want them to have real world independence. Yes, Olivia, that is so deep and so true. And I'm so all about that. I think it's one of the reasons I sent him on this trip where he would have no tech. You know, it was like the first time in five years that he hasn't been attached to tech. And I was worried, but of course you know, it's like a privilege at this point to be free of tech for a month, not to have your phone. You know, it's like liberating. Soon there'll be massive vacation packages that are Wi-Fi free and that's the attraction. So we can get our own sort of mentis back. I think that's fascinating, this freedom on the internet, because there's a lot of shit that they run into on the internet. No, it's really hard to monitor too, especially when you try to put them on the kids' YouTube and they're like, break the code. They know the computer better than we know the computer. Yes. But yeah, so it's true. Like, so fostering independence is one of the the best things that you can do as an artist parent, because not only are you helping them to trust their own creativity, but also you're trying to create some space for yourself, right? But what about like the real challenges of when, for instance, during the pandemic, when it's like, there is no real escape, you can't send them out of the house and there's nowhere to go. Like when you're in a real bind, somehow with balancing everything, what have you guys done? What are some of the things you guys have done to save yourselves? I mean, mine has been all about relying on community, really plugging into the village mindset, again, of helping each other raise kids and not being afraid to ask for that and understanding that everybody gets it. I think, as you're saying, during the pandemic, that became completely impossible, which is why it was so hard. But one of the things we've been so looking forward to getting back to and now finally feeling a little normalized is the idea of being able to say, like, I need help. I need to go and work. I need to go and think. And I want you to (laughs) take my child (laughs) and, and be there. And it's taking the shame out of that completely and just embracing the community mindset of of parenting or the guilt. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I would agree with that deeply. And also I think for me, I've been a student of Buddhism for 30 years and I think my spiritual practice has been very, very helpful. You know, just understanding that it's all impermanent. It's all going to be changing every moment. There's no point getting too hooked into whatever's up at that particular second Feelings, you know, are meant to like self-liberate. They're going to come and go like buses. It's not really worth the energy to just dwell too much in the complication, just keep it flowing. And also lately, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of being a householder that, you know, there's a period in your life where really your focus is making sure that your family is sort of stable and that you are preparing them for the next phase of their lives and also preparing yourself for the next phase of your life when they're going to move on and out into the world. And you can return to a kind of solitude or free-flowing creativity that you had before you were a householder, when you were in your journeying, searching, evolving state. (laughs) You know, I mean, we're always in that state. But to think of life in terms of 
phases, you know, and to really get comfortable with that and not to feel like it's a failure, but that it's fundamentally a kind of truth of this particular time and that our lives have these different segments. I love what you were saying about the phases. And you can say that more than Olivia and I, because our kids are younger and we're just entering and it looks like forever ahead. <laughs> and so we have a different perspective. And to hear you say, yeah, oh yeah, and then this phase, and then you go back into the journey phase. And I'm like, ooh. But at the same time, it's sad too, because you're like, it goes so fast. My son's eight. Eight and 17. It's a long time. I know it goes fast. And I look at him and I right. think, oh my God, this has gone so fast. But really... It's like by the time they're ready, you're pretty ready. And the goal is just to make sure that you've created a place they want to come home to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then when I was texting with him, I was a little nervous, like, okay, I hope he wants to come home. And that was the first thing he said, like, I can't wait to come home and tell you everything. And that's oh, what you want, you know, yeah. because by that point, you're like, yay, go into the world, be fabulous, do everything I've ever taught you <laughs> and then come home. So being the daughter of a creative mother, what are some of the specific things that you want to try to do your approach a little bit differently? Yeah, I think that, you know, as the daughter of a creative and of an artist and also of a civil rights lawyer who was incredibly committed to his clients and social change, I often felt that my mother's creative process and work was more, not more important than my um, being. And <laughs> it was, um, you know, she left me alone. She really prioritized working. She needed to be in a very focused space. And I think that there were many positive aspects of that. You know, I was very independent from a very young age and, and that gave me a lot of agency and a sense of power. But it's a hard line because I felt vulnerable in other ways. I was always making her tea while she was writing and sort of sublimating myself, whatever. I think that my parenting style is a real result of, you know, I don't want to say a, a reaction to like a formation reaction or whatever it's called, a reaction formation, whatever. But I have felt the need to be closer to him, to really model a more balanced way of being an artist, to be both present and separate. And when I say present, I mean present in the sort of day-to-day -day aspects of his life and making sure that he doesn't feel lonely, making sure that he understands that while this is important to me, he is equally important to me, if not more important to me. But at the same time, really wanting him to be independent and respectful of my creative work. I think I've been very, very involved in his life in the sort of minute details. I mean, my mom wasn't necessarily talking to all my teachers, checking and making sure all my homework was handled, making sure my psychological well-being was, you know, supported. She was making sure that I was being educated. She was making sure I wasn't suicidal, but she wasn't deeply connected and she didn't talk to me about my friendships, really. Like, I want to know, like, what kind of friends do you have? I want to know the friends. What are you thinking about in terms of your life? I mean, sometimes it could be too much. Who knows? At some point he may say, mom, you asked me way too many questions. And sometimes he'll push back. But I think I'm just much more in tune with what's happening for him, all of the ups and downs and making sure he's on track on several different paths that I think are important. And my mom was much more laid back, let's say, in that. And so I had right. to navigate a lot more on my own. 
you know, that I don't really let him navigate by himself. I think he always has the sense that we're in it together. And I think that's something that's been really important to me. Yeah, that makes total sense to me because that's the part where I feel guilt when I'm not doing some of those things. Olivia, I wanted to ask you because I've been in awe of Olivia since we had babies almost at the same time and I've been watching her. And as I'm like, you know, just trying to figure out breastfeeding, she's like back to recording a film and, you know, beating up people in the film and her body's, you know, and then she's like, now I'm directing. Now I'm moving to London and now I'm moving back. I can't even imagine how you manage the balance of being present in the ways that Rebecca's talking about while you're literally directing and starring in a film at the same time. Well, I don't. You know, it's so interesting to hear you say that, Rebecca, because I, too, felt like my parents, who are both writers and journalists, and they were working in war zones for much of my childhood. They were working together and separately writing books, making films. They were so inspiring. And my sister and my brother who came later, but we share this experience of them not being particularly involved in the ways of which you speak. For instance, they didn't really know the other parents at the school and the parent-teacher stuff. It was kind of like, oh, they're here for the essential stuff. And that was enough. And they did make us feel very loved. But I know as a parent, I've wanted to be more engaged and to make my kids feel like they're going through it with me, just as you described. But I don't feel like I'm capable of that when I'm in the middle of directing a movie, for sure. It just doesn't seem possible. And the way that I try to make sense of it is exactly in terms of the idea of chapters and phases, like we were just speaking of. I know there will be periods where I'm not as engaged and involved, and I won't be at all the birthday parties and the playdates, and I won't be as aware of what's happening in school and at home, but then I will make up for it in this other stage. And it's a bit of a roller coaster because you constantly feel like you're making up for something. So when you're totally engaged with the kids, you feel like you're not working as hard, and then you're working hard, and you feel like you're going to have to make up mm-hmm. not being present. And it it is this constant flow, and I try to, instead of thinking of it as like I'm always insufficient in some way, I think, well, I'm always succeeding in one way, never everything at the same time. That's a good way to think about it, because I always do. I'm like you. Yeah. I always think I'm insufficient yeah. in some way, and I always feel guilt. And I think part of that is for me, unlike you guys, my parents were Though I feel that my father in particular was very much a creative, they weren't living as creatives. My dad was a lawyer and my mom was a psychiatrist, right? You know, they worked. They were busy. They were working. But they were also home. There was a schedule. Mm. They were home on the weekends. So it was just like, for me, I remember them being very present in a way that fits like a nine to five life. Even though my mom went to medical school with three children. Like, it's not the typical story. Like, it was crazy. And she was very busy from my lower school years. But they were home. So then I'm measuring up to that, which is completely impossible from my lifestyle. So it makes me always feel like I'm not doing enough because my life isn't like that. Like, I have to leave my kids and go on tour. I've never had three kids on tour before. I had one, and I took him the first time. But that's another thing is like trying to figure out how to do it. I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, when I first had to take a crib on a tour bus, I tried to Google it. (laughs) Zero. I mean, it was like one thing about building a custom tour bus with a crib, which obviously I'm not doing. You really have to make up the rules and you're measuring yourself up to 
people who, that's why me and Olivia found each other because it was like all the other mothers at school, yeah. nobody was doing all the stuff that we were trying to do. And nobody could understand. There was nobody to talk to about how to figure out how do you do this? Like there's no guidebook. And I don't feel like enough mothers who are in this position get together and talk about it. And you like seek out people who are doing superhuman feats of motherhood. And you're like, wait, what did you do? It feels like you're just in the Wild West trying to figure it out. I feel in some ways, like as someone who's a little older and I don't know what it is about any of it, if it's age or I don't know, who knows. But I think that guilt is completely not helpful. And that you both, all three of us are doing the absolute best we can. And I'm sure that all three of us are doing a fantastic, incredible job. And our kids are going to be the beneficiaries of not just our love and attention and devotion, but also seeing our work and our art and our insistence upon our own happiness and well-being. And I think that's going to serve them very well because their lives are not going to be simple. You know, in the world that we're moving into, it's going to be less and less simple. So the guilt you sweet people that I (laughs) love even more. I don't want you to be carrying guilt around. This is ridiculous. I mean, I think that's a scourge of motherhood in our culture that we're not doing enough. Are you kidding? We're we're raising the next generation that's going to keep this world going. And thank God we have enough Mm. sense to be raising good people who have the chance to keep the species alive. I mean, we've already done the hardest work, you know, so... I think that part of the problem is that we're not paid for our work in some ways, that domestic work is not considered valuable work, viable work, because it's not attached to a monetary sum, which is what's so valued in this culture. And so it's seen as this very not consequential thing. And yet we're doing the most valuable work, if you think about it. It speaks to like the cultural inequities and support and opportunities and sexism in general and what feminists fought for, you know, people always say, oh, we fought for the wrong thing. We fought for the same as men rather than specific to what our needs were, which are completely different than what men need. And now we're like straddling this ridiculous thing where we're trying to, we can do just as much, just as good, whatever, but actually we do way more. And it's not recognized, compensated, seen. I mean, Roe versus Wade just taking place right now, just like, I mean, it's a whole three other episodes, but just the view of women in the world right now, and let alone what we're doing as mothers, but what we're doing as beings and also trying to raise these children at the same time. It's the same thing I've been talking about as being a Black woman. You have to go above and beyond, you know? And as women in general, you have to go above and beyond and be better than everybody else just to exist at the same level and then still not get the same opportunities, support, pay. So that's a whole nother thing. And then also within our own homes. It feels to me like one thing that we could really proactively do is encourage women to stop shaming one another. You know, I think so much about how women participate in perpetuating all the parts of the patriarchy, even unknowingly, because we were raised that way. Exactly. So even hearing you say, Rebecca, you know, telling us, don't feel guilty. If that was more of the conversation amongst women, if there was an encouraging energy of like, you're doing your best, I see you, you'll be okay, as opposed to the constant judgment and shaming from other women, which is the tricky thing. You know, when you are the last mom at the pickup line at school, 
you are not really worried that your kid thinks you don't love them. You know your kid knows you love them. What happens is this panic of like, I don't look like I'm doing this right. And yet maybe you were just at work running shit, doing incredible things, and yet you have failed now because you're 10 minutes late for pickup. Or when you just completely forget to pick up the kid. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You just don't show up. (laughs) You don't show up. And you know what? They're fine. I mean, I have thought a lot about this in the past year about, you know, the judgment that I have felt from other women. I've been thinking a lot about it. I somehow feel that I can withstand the judgment of men because I have come to understand that they cannot, they don't understand what it's like to be me. And I've sort of given up, I guess, on like the idea of men empathizing on a real level. But with women, it's so disappointing when you feel that judgment that just only furthers our general subjugation as women, as all of us. It's like, don't you see you're playing their game? Don't you see that by pushing me down, you're just lifting the men up? It's only if we can support each other that we'll actually achieve this equality and this power that we claim to want. And yet we do so much to shove each other down. What I want to do with my work more than anything these days is encourage other women, remove shame, allow people to be messy, allow people to change and specifically women and to like encourage this energy of acceptance amongst women because I'm just kind of appalled at the misogyny being perpetuated by women. I read this paper that I wrote when I was like in high school. I found it recently and I don't even remember what book it was, but it was talking about an Audre Lorde quote that was talking about for women to get where we want to get, to receive the recognition and freedom and all the things that we want from the world, we must first give that to ourselves Mm. and to each other. So we have to get free ourselves in our own heads and our own minds and our own relationships before we can demand that other people treat us in that way as well. And I think that's basically what you're saying. And I think is a really, really important point. Thinking about our work, you know, and I hate to keep referencing my books, but I wrote a whole book called Baby Love, Choosing Motherhood After a Lifetime of Ambivalence, just because, you know, I grew up in this very intense feminist community that really saw motherhood as a kind of slavery, as a kind of capitulation to the patriarchy. And so I was raised to think that having children was not awesome. And yet I longed for a child and I had to really work through the judgment that I felt you know, imagined or real coming from that community and ideology. And I think that's something that I think about a lot. You know, what does it mean to claim the desire to have a child and also the desire not to have a child? I think I meet so many women who don't want children and who feel so shamed as if they're not fully adequate. They're not a full woman because they don't have a child, want a child. And I want to support them too. And I now say, after I wrote Baby Love, there were people saying to me, oh, I decided to have a child after reading your book. I was on the fence. You know, and now I'm like, you know, it's a really hard thing having a kid. And (laughs) it's a lot of work. And you really should want it profoundly because it's going to take you through stuff you've never imagined. And it's not just fulfilling a role. It's not just following a script. It's you have to know deep in your heart that you're willing to give up your sense of, of a sovereign self. You are no longer 
what you were. But also I wanted to speak to Olivia's note about women and men. I think part of what we need to be doing, you know, and especially those of us who have sons, is making sure that we are raising boys and men who do have an understanding of what we do and how hard it is and who are able to show up and be the partners that we need and the parents that we need and who have the empathy. I mean, the movement has been about allowing us to have the full spectrum of our humanity and men really need to be supported in their movement to have the full spectrum of their humanity and not the sort of toxic masculinity that they're raised in. Exactly. And so I think that's another role, you know, as a black mother, I have my fears and anxiety about having a black son as a feminist progressive mom who's trying to save the world. I have my concerns about making sure that he's full of empathy and able to have emotions and able to really connect and show up in a good way. We have a lot of responsibilities, basically. I was just going to say, when you're talking about raising boys in particular, outside of this cultural norm of toxic masculinity, but with partners who aren't fully stepped outside of that themselves, that's challenging too. It's like, how do you deal with that long perpetuated culture. And Rebecca, you've got a very unique perspective because I think you've parented with men and women, right? Yeah, Tenzin's father was actually quite wonderful. I mean, I was thinking about you going on the road and I remember I went out on the road when Tenzin was six weeks old. I had to go do, I don't know, a series of talks in colleges somewhere, God knows where. And I had to leave and I left him and his father was completely supportive and I had no fears or hesitations in some ways. I chose a very good father for him. Uh, You know, it's complicated at this point, but you know, fundamentally, and that was someone who had done a lot of work in in thinking about masculinity and, and wanting to show up in a different way. And now my wife, you know, we have a blended family and we parent I would say it's challenging for Tenzin to be in a household full of women (laughs) in some ways, but I think it does connect. He sees and hears our lives in a very immersive way. And so I'm hoping that that translates long-term into a heightened sensitivity of what it means to walk through the world in a woman's body in the same way I think that we're all much more sensitive to what it means to walk through the world in a black man's body. So I think the choice of who who you partner with is very important and will inform your kids for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's obvious, but I think often people don't think as deeply about this as perhaps they might. I do think that what I've learned is sharing values with your partner is very important and sharing ideas about how you want to raise your child is so important and talking explicitly about those ideas and asking them like, well, really, what are you thinking about what we're doing and what do you want our kids to have? And this is what I want. And I want to hear what you want. And let's figure out how to actually give them both or come up with the best idea for them together. So it's not easy, but I have found that it's very important as opposed to just like the surface battle, you know, we were like, oh my God, really? Did you say that to our kid? Like, do you think, you know what I mean? That. It's so important to have those kind of conversations. The problem is that we're all very stuck in our own past, you know? And so we're all at different 
places and being able to sort through our stuff and be aware in the moment of when we are acting in the ways that we've learned in the past. And so it's like, yes, you can have the conversations, but it's not instant. And it takes years of work and practice to be able to be aware and present of when you're not really being in that space. Recently, I've had the opportunity to introduce my kids to the concept of differing perspectives. And I think this comes because we have a separated family and there are plenty of things that their dad feels very differently about than I do. And so they'll now push back on me when I say something, whether it's as simple as like no violent video games or no video games or no movies of a certain type or nothing past this time, little rules like that down to more philosophical questions. But if I say something, sometimes they'll say like, well, daddy feels differently. And it's been interesting because it's allowed me to explain to them, oh, you, you have a choice in how you feel and everyone has a different perspective and there isn't this blanket right or wrong moral governing law. And I think that's harder to do potentially when you're in the same household because it feels like the household should have a rule. So it's been interesting to kind of take advantage of this alternate family structure to say like, oh, one of the maybe beautiful side effects to all of this is that we can learn about multiple perspectives and we can embrace the idea of these kind of different views on the world, not as battling elements, but as something that can prepare the kids themselves for what will inevitably be a lifetime of changing perspectives. And it's been really fun to have these conversations. Like I recently was talking to Daisy, who's five, about the importance of choosing happiness for herself. It's the kind of conversation that comes out of what can be considered difficult moments in parenting. And yet if you embrace the opportunity to confront it could be very difficult and messy in some ways, but to turn it into something valuable. It's amazing, I guess, how available they are for those conversations, even at a really young age. Like, we underestimate what they're capable of understanding. I'm now not avoiding the difficult conversations with them, even if they're initially kind of scary, because you're like, oh, God, shouldn't we just tell them there's a right and a wrong and a this, this good, bad? And it's like, actually, no, they can handle it. It's much more complicated. And they go so much deeper than we think that they would go. Like Radic, I always find myself, I mean, he, sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a teenager and he just asks questions and questions and I just answer them. So I just tell him. And sometimes he'll go, mom, why did you tell me that I'm only eight? Because he just asks that, tell him the truth. I'm like, would you ask me? But it's cool though, because he'll tell you when it's too much. And then you say, okay, well, stop yes. there. But you did ask. Right. I think, too, as a child of divorce, you know, Olivia, what you're talking about, having parents who were very, very different. My father, you know, like a Jewish civil rights lawyer from Brooklyn. My mom, you know, African-American from the Deep South. And they were not really connected during my childhood. And so I was moving back and forth between very different ideologies. I had a lot of struggle around moving back and forth between these different worlds, you know, as I was an adolescent wanting a sense of stability and identity and all that. But as I became an adult, I started to realize the true wealth of that, you know, exactly what you're saying, Olivia, that, that I was able to code switch, as we now say, in a very profound way and be able to navigate many, many worlds because I had this kind of facility for 
being able to stay connected and loving and attached to people with seemingly opposing points of view on just about everything. But I was able to hold it all as I became older. It was hard when I was young, but now I consider it one of the great gifts of my life, you know, and it's really allowed me to be the artist I am and the mother that I am. So Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is really important for people who are dealing with this to hear that you feel this guilt and fear around the two houses or the three houses or however many houses. But if you just stay with it, it can be a tremendous boon for your children, you know? Oh, I love to hear that. That's so inspiring. I know. I'm so inspired. I love that you guys are saying no shame, stop shaming yourself, that the kids can take it. They're going to be okay. It builds character. Like these are all the things You're right. I mean, this is what we need to hear. This is what we need to say. I think it's great. But also, one last thing I wanted to mention. You said something about what we give up as mothers. You said sovereignty. And I think that's a really huge thing to give up. And I'll tell you, I didn't really understand when I was having kids that I was giving anything big up. And it was a surprise. And uh, it's been a struggle. I would never not do it again. But For an artist, it's a huge thing to give up your autonomy, not have the space to think, (laughs) not have the space to use the bathroom and shower. It's huge. How do you keep on without any sovereignty and autonomy? I think that I've just come to embrace it. I feel that being a mother, as I wrote in Baby Love, it was like the first club I ever felt I belonged to fully, you know, the motherhood Mm -hmm. club. I decided that this was a powerful part of my evolution as a human being to feel this kind of way that was so much bigger than me. And it connected me in a way and made me grow in a way that I don't know any other experience can give you. So I've embraced it and I've decided I'm going to live these years in that space to the fullest. You know, I'm really going to let it be that way. But also, again, that idea of phases, of knowing that this is not forever. And if I'm able to live as long as I want, you know, hope to live, then this too will be one of the several phases of my life. You know, I will always be sort of transpersonal, bigger than myself because of my child in a profound way. But coming back to myself is just around the corner, you know, and that is helpful to really own the time in the way I owned my 20s, you know, and did Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of blissful, difficult surrender to the truth of it that gives me a kind of peace, you know, with it. I love that. That was like, I felt that in my soul, that answer. I love the idea of connecting to this larger than yourself idea of motherhood, whether it's, I mean, even like the universe, you know, or the earth motherhood, it's like, I mean, to be part of that club, to be the club of the earth or the club of the universe as a mother, I mean, it's amazing. And I actually have never really thought of it like that, but it is, you channel that in the act of mothering and in sort of that evolution, as you said, and that that perspective is, is brilliant. I love that too. I think that this conversation about removing guilt and shame is the key to demanding sovereignty, enough 
sovereignty in order to continue as an artist. I think that's the key to all of it. I think if you were to really work on removing all the senses of, you know, instead of I have to go to work, it's I get to go to work. You know, I remember someone told me that when I had Otis Mm -hmm. and it changed everything. They're like, don't instill them with a judgment against your career by projecting your own shame about it onto them. Mm. If the, if you make them feel like your work is something you've worked hard for and is a, a dream come true, then maybe it doesn't have to become this thing they compete with in order to have mm. your love. So I try very hard not to accidentally project my own judgment of my career onto my kids. But I think if we can just in every way remove the guilt and shame, then we will allow for space for ourselves and to demand it without guilt and without apologizing for being artists. And, you know, there's so many different ways of doing it. Directors, female directors, I know want to establish daycares on sets. This is just as an example, like daycare on set. I want to have my kids there on, on set. And I don't know if that's the right answer for me. I don't know if bringing my children directly into my creative zone is actually Better for them or me. No, because then you can't focus. I don't think I'll be good at anything at that point. Because then you turn into you turn <laughs> into the like, I wonder if they're okay. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Like you totally can't just like yeah. get rid of them fools. Leave them at home. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> get me out of here. Allowing for like, close your door, a room of one's own. Like That's we right. are allowed that. Right. And I think also understanding that while we should value our own presence as their mothers, not to overvalue it to the point where we assume that without us, their life is so diminished. Mm -hmm. Like I think so much about how a lot of my childhood, how much I benefited from the presence of other adults. And I remind myself of that when I think instead of like, oh, I feel so bad. I left them with a friend or I left them with a nanny. And it's like, I've given them the opportunity to benefit from this energy that's different from my own. And why is my energy so much better than theirs? It's not necessarily. Around that person, they're learning a whole different set of skills. And I think all that work is about removing the guilt and the shame and embracing it all and just understanding that we deserve that sovereignty and that space. And I believe in it so completely. I mean, it's so hard, but it's like an everyday struggle. We get to go to work. We don't have to go to work. Yeah. I mean, I'm leaving this feeling like this was for me. Like, I'm, (laughs) this is great. I feel like I learned a lot. It's so good. (laughs) Same. Yeah. I agree with you, Olivia. Last thing I'm going to say is that uh, I do view my work as a, well, the creative part of it, not then taking it out in the business part. I don't like so much, but the creative part of it is a joy, is an escape, is a personal opportunity to connect to something higher for myself. And it is a joy. And I think my kids can see that when I'm doing that part. I think they like that too. They're excited by it. We were in the taxi the other day and the guy said, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a singer. And my daughter goes, I'm a singer too. My other son goes, I'm a singer too. And my other kid goes, I'm a cartoonist. And I was like, you know, but I think they look up to that. You're right. They see you enjoying what you do. And it's important as a model of what you can get out of work. I will never forget seeing a show of yours, Santi, at the Palladium in Hollywood. And Radic was there running around and we were watching you Mm. and he was so proud. He must've been three. He was so proud and he was watching you and dancing. And I was like, Radic, that's your mom. And he was like, yeah, that's my mom. And I was thinking at that moment, like, this kid, 
imagine watching your mom on stage like that, occupying the stage in the way that you do. Like, that's what they're growing up with. So we have to be careful not to ever apologize for that. I just took my son to this interview I did for the, I don't know what it was, BBC or MS or something. And afterwards, I said, what do you think? He was like, you killed it. (laughs) He was was so sweet. He was like, I didn't know you knew all that stuff. It was so funny. I was like, well, yeah, this is what mommy does when she goes and like talks to people. And you're just like, oh, you're going to go do a talk. I'm like, yeah, this is it. And he said, wow, you know, that's really amazing. I couldn't do that. I was like, you could do this, you know, but I get it, you know, and it's important that you understand what this is, you know, what it means when I go to work and why I go to work and why it's important to me and why I believe it's important to the world. You know, he said, well, why do you do this? And I said, I do this because I have a voice. People ask me to, I have the opportunity to share these thoughts with the world. And many people don't. And I'm speaking for all of the people who don't have an opportunity to talk about these important issues. I don't always want to get up and deal with all this, but it's my responsibility and I take it very seriously. And I think that was very important for him to hear. And especially this generation that is tending towards sort of an ahistoricity where they they're not that connected with history. And they're so in this little world of the, the phone. Sometimes I don't feel that he feels that he has this incredible opportunity to bring his voice to the table in a meaningful way that can create change. And so it's important to model that for him and bring him in at the times when I think it'll actually get in there. You know, developmentally, you have to assess your kids. Like, when can he really hear this? You know, so that was a beautiful moment. So I'm really with both of you in this. And this has been very beautiful and healing. It has. I'm so grateful for you guys coming on here. This is yeah. so good. I get on these yeah. things and I don't know what's going to happen. And it's like this one, this was food for me, food for my spirit today. So thank you guys so much. And I love you guys. And I wish yeah. you guys all the best in your journeys of motherhood and creativity. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Love you. Olivia Wilde and Rebecca Walker talking about being creative mothers. Next time I'm back with Saul Williams and Mary Anise Hegler to talk about race and climate change. Mm-hmm.